0: You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key US and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for US international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So let's go back to the long and winding road that is pillar two. We'd spoken before about the possible gap between government's willingness to sign up to Pillar 2 in concept and their practical ability to implement it, particularly in Latin America. Now, we're a little further down this road chronologically, but thought we might dig in on where things currently stand. Joining me today are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, Doug Palms, an international tax principal from our Washington National Tax Office, and Armando Lara, international tax partner from KPMG Mexico.
1: So welcome back, Armando and Doug. And this is going to be, I think, a fascinating conversation because really the interactions here with the local rules and the goals of Pillar 2 are really at odds in some spots. So looking forward to the conversation.
0: Totally agree. So let's start with Mexico, a jurisdiction that has signaled both the will and the way to get Pillar 2 done. Armando, has there been any movement in Mexico regarding Pillar 2 legislation?
2: Thank you so much, Basically, Mexico has mentioned unofficially in some specific professional forums that they are revising all of the proposed legislation by the OECD in relation to the implementation of Pillar 2. Definitely, this is something that they are revising carefully because it represents a very huge challenge for tax administrations in order to administrate them. They are saying that all of these articles and provisions have to be revised in the way that they can allow the tax administration to have an easy management of those package of rules. Up to now we have not seen any formal procedure in order to start the discussions or at least a draft legislation proposal to the Congress. We can expect that if they want to introduce those rules this year will be in September when the Congress start again the ordinary a period of sessions, and if they want to present something, will be in September, and we need to see if the decision is to go for the whole package of measures, mm-hmm. or only to introduce the qualifying minimum top of tax in Mexico in order to protect the tax base. And actually, Kim, I have to guess that probably if Mexico wants to implement Pillar Two and introduce a UTPR measure has to be in a different law, not in the income tax law for one single reason. We have to take into consideration that the income tax law has now a tax base that is determined by the income that has to be considered as a taxable and expenses that are considered as deductions for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. The law does not make any reference to the financial statements in order to have an, a tax base in order to calculate an income tax. So in that regard, what we need to have in Mexico is to create a new law with a new tax saying that the tax base will be based on the financial statement with the adjustments, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And there will be some specific limitations in the deductions because we need to take into consideration that Mexico has in the tax area certain concepts that are deductible that they are not impact in the financial statements such as the adjustment for inflation, for example. So, in that regard, they have to build an infrastructure, I have to say, where they have to put these different elements in relation to how this Pillar 2 is operating and try probably only to make a link between these two legislations in order that, in the absence of a resolving one, this triggers the operation of the second legislation.
1: That doesn't sound like an easy task, or at least it wouldn't be in the United States. So, anything else, Armando, as we think about the challenges, maybe from a Mexico perspective on certain pieces of this?
2: Basically, one of the key questions that many people have raised is what happened with the maquila industry? We have now the, the safe hardware rules saying that you have to pay 6.5 on the value of the expenses or so 6.9 on the value of the assets. But that you have the problem is when you have an, a principal located in Switzerland or Luxembourg. We are saying that notwithstanding that for purposes of the treaty, you will have a PE. In Mexico, we don't recognize an PE. So, there will be a residual part that can be stateless income. And who will be the one that has to tax this stateless income? In absence of a rule now, probably when the Pillar 2 will be set up or will be entered into force in Switzerland or in Luxembourg, we are assuming that the residual part that Mexico is not taxing, taking into consideration that the formula probably is only catching the actual functions and that's all. But there will be a residual that cannot be taxed in Mexico. This will be subject in Luxembourg or in Switzerland, depending where is located, the principal, if they have implemented the Pillar 2. Unless Mexico, in the future, will implement the qualified minimum domestic type of tax in order to be sure that any single income cannot be treated as a stateless and will be attributable to Mexico and subject to this part. This is one of the discussions that we have seen in the maquila industry. The other one is what happened with the carve out? The carve out will be enough in order to consider that, notwithstanding that, probably you cannot reach the 15% with the carve out, take into consideration that the maquila industry is very high intensive in labor. And notwithstanding that the assets are not recorded at the level of the maquila, the maquila is the one that has the economic exploitation of them. So in accordance to the rules, we need to attribute that to the maquila, and therefore we need to make a calculation on that. What would be the value? How I can treat the assets? The assets normally in a maquila situation are on consignment. Mm -hmm. They are recorded in the books of the principal. The maquila only receives them. But if I follow the rules of attribution of profits of the permanent establishment, if you want, the economic owner of that are the maquilas. Why? Because the economic exploitation of them. So do I have to take into consideration those assets for purposes to calculate the car out in relation to the maquila industry or not? And what would be the value of the precision? Because actually, they don't have value of depreciation precision because it's on the consignment this is this is a very good question so i see you're, wow. you wow know, that there will be a lot of questions that we need to resolve in that regard but i don't have the answer now
3: oh, that's we okay. <laughs> we have so many maquilas as i think about where we sit and Kind of Detroit and the autos, just thinking about how significant that would be for so many, because we have a bunch that are not US owned for sure. That was a huge move. We have got many that are held outside the US. And if I think about that unallocated portion that we would be allocating toward a Mexican branch, that's interesting to see who's going to get that if Mexico would chooses not to do the QDMTT, right?
2: Is there any way that if there is an estate income and the principal is located in the United States? Guilty rules will apply on that stately Cinco, I assume, or not. I don't think so.
0: CAMT maybe, but not guilty, because guilty looks at the tested income swimming around the CFCs. In a very informal
2: conversation, and I want to stress that, an informal conversation with tax authorities, they mentioned some time ago that they rely on the carve-out in order that the maquila industry will not be impacted by the Pillar 2. But I am not quite sure if it's true or not. We need to wait and see what will be the final math on this.
3: So just make sure I'm understanding then too, as I think about the general maquila and the principal, let's say it's U.S. and the principal's paying its portion and I've got a reduced rate in the maquila at the 6%. -hmm. Is the risk then too, when I look at the maquila from a Pillar 2 perspective, just on a standalone, it's going to be too low tax?
2: Could be, depending We need to check what is the math that we need to do. Basically, is what the financial statements are saying in relation to the McKill activity and the taxes paid. We need to calculate the ATR on a different base. That's the problem. Right, right. So probably the math is okay and there is no problem at all. But probably the math says No you are not reaching the 15% with the amount of tax based on the calculation of the 6.5% of the costs of expenses or so 6.9% of the value of the assets multiplied by your income. But you have that amount multiplied by the 30%. So probably there will be situations if they are paying under safe harbor rules, the tax to be paid is so high. That's why they are leaving the maquila program and they are becoming as a toll manufacturer because it seems to be that is cheaper to operate that way instead of to keep with the safe harbor rules. So the math, we need to make the math.
0: Yes. Speaking of maquilas, there are other kinds of arrangements where the income tax is agreed between the government and the taxpayer up front, right? So, for example, if a government is obligated under a mining concessions or legal stability agreement with a specific taxpayer, they can't just raise tax no matter what they've said to the OECD, can they?
2: Exactly. No, for example, the stability agreements in Peru is exactly an agreement between a company and the government in which you sign a contract with the government saying that my tax regime will be the one that is contained here. And you cannot change in any way for the following 10 years. And this is something that is protected by the Constitution. So the potential impact that you can have in Pillar 2 is if the country establishes a qualified domestic minimum top of tax and as a result of the calculations in a scenario where this company that is protected by these stability agreements is not reaching the 15 percent, the government has not the right to apply the qualified minimum top of tax because there is a constitutional protection for the company so in that regard it will be impossible to do that also, for example, in the case that we assume one country that has this kind of agreements in its jurisdiction, they have implemented the full Pillar two, and there is a UTPR that has to be applicable at the level of this company. It would be impossible to do that because the agreement will protect them. The only way that I see that the government can ask for more taxes would be if the stability agreements only cover certain type of taxes and they qualified the Pillar 2 taxes as a different one from those that are contained in the agreement.
1: So that's problem number one. And I think that even if they manage to find a way to impose a QDMTT on those taxpayers, there'd have to be some kind of give back, right? As a contractual matter, even if not as a constitutional one.
0: Yeah, I'd have to agree that those taxpayers aren't likely to suck it up with respect to more tax, whatever you call it. I think I'd have to have a give back of some kind, but I guess that in and of itself could cause some issues. So, Doug, creditability under Pillar 2, that's a given at this point, yeah?
4: Yeah. The guidance that is coming out of the OECD on Pillar 2 give a clear indication that QDMTT should be creditable taxes.
0: The U.S. hasn't necessarily settled, at least in public, on whether or not these QDMTTs will be creditable for the U.S. for 901 purposes, right? 901, 960 purposes, right?
4: There's been no formal guidance on what's going to happen in our U.S. foreign tax credit rules for KDMTTs, but I think it's widely recognized that they will be creditable taxes because they're just income taxes imposed by the country. They're just another formulation of coming up with an alternative tax. But again, I think we're very confident that those taxes would be creditable taxes.
0: Assuming you get to that, then I guess the give back then poses subsidy issues. Yeah, right?
4: exactly. So that would be a major problem if there's a direct link between QDMTT or a tax increase in a jurisdiction and a promise or a clear indication that. That's going to be offset by some other benefit, whether that's a reduction in another tax like a payroll tax or an excise tax or some other financial benefit given from the government in terms of concessions or being given other benefits in form of use of facilities or access or whatever it is. Any kind of benefit that could be measured if that is tied to this increase in tax and you have a subsidy issue.
1: There's a huge assumption we're making that a give back is even possible. It sounds like Armando thinks it generally isn't, but even if you could squeeze in a top-up, I don't know if taxpayers will just take it on the chin without one.
2: Those agreements are basically very well detailed in the agreement. We need to ask somebody from LATAM if there is this flexibility or not. My understanding is there is no flexibility at all.
1: And then I guess the issue is whether if a local QDMTT is not possible for constitutional or other reasons, other countries could pick up the top up under a UTPR.
0: Yeah, and I think the constitutional issues get even harder there. So Armando, if a Mexican entity was sitting on the same org chart as, say, an entity with a mining concession or a legal stability agreement, would you foresee difficulties for imposing a UTPR?
2: In the case of Mexico, the income tax always has to take into consideration the changes on the patrimony of a company. Mm -hmm. In this case, a company is obliged to pay a tax because there is somebody else from the group that it doesn't reach the minimum tax. So there is no modification at all in Mexico why you have to pay a tax. If you follow all of the jurisprudence and court decisions in income tax, this will be very challenging for the tax authorities to try to implement this as an income tax or as a link to an income tax, because the principle of the income tax is you have to change your patrimony. And mm-hmm. in this case, it's not happening.
0: And it'd be one thing if we were looking at a minimum tax of some kind when you're, as you speak about patrimony, above the incidence of the low-taxed income. But if you're cross-chain or you're below the incidence of the low-taxed income, so it is a direct or indirect parent with respect to which you're paying a top-up tax, that just doesn't work. (laughs) I mean, those entities are never going to generate income directly or indirectly or share value for the UTPR taxpayer. And so it just gets very problematic in terms of that top up function. Now, but you do, though, have the deduction disallowance piece of the UTPR, at least. And the deduction disallowance rules, if I recall, they looked at the ETR with respect to the income paid, the income that generated the deduction in Mexico, and not the ETR of the payee entity, and mm-hmm. certainly not the ETR of that pay entity blended with the ETRs of other pay entities Correct. resident in the same jurisdiction. So that could go either way, right? You could be on the bad side of that. You could be on the good side of that in terms of whether the deduction disallowance rule in Mexico is stricter than pillar two, but it would just be a payment by payment determination. So yeah, that's really a tough one.
2: Correct, that's the way that you have to calculate the ETR transaction by transaction And this is something that is crazy because there is no rules how you can attribute the part of the expenses that the recipient of the income is putting in place in order to get the income. And this lack of rules of attribution, this is something that you can in legal uncertainty. And there is another argument in order to raise constitutional problems.
0: Oh, yeah, because then I guess you'd end up with your gross income subject to the tax, whereas you would probably, if you started putting, allocating correct deductions against them,
1: mm-hmm. you'd
0: end up with a higher ATR. So you definitely want that. Okay, <laughs> fun. <laughs> yeah.
2: And let me tell you one point. The disallowance rules are now under consideration of our courts because many companies consider that those rules are not in accordance to the rule of how you can determine when you can access to another option. Basically, Mm -hmm. because you are relying on the level of taxation of a third party in order to say that you have the right to deduct. And the problem is what happened with the sequence payments in which you have a second payment, and there is something in which you are saying, depending on the tax legislation of a foreign country, your deduction will be applicable or not. In those bases, there has been a lot of challenges now in Mexico. The, the courts have not resolved yet this matter. But nevertheless, as you have said, this piece, at least, of the UTPR is now in operation in Mexico, and we need to see what will be the final result in courts.
4: But then okay. there's a secondary question about what the U.S. is going to do with UTPR taxes. Are they going to credit those taxes? Right now, I guess the view is that they're not creditable taxes because they're not taxes on the income of the entity, or tax on somebody else's income. And from a policy standpoint, does the U.S. really want to subsidize all these other countries' taxes that are not imposed on their income, but again on another country's income that's low taxed? And so there's real questions about the creditability of ETPRs. Another issue is. If a country decides to implement a UTPR not through an income inclusion rule but through a deduction disallowance, which was the original formulation it was originally the under tax payment rule the fact that a country would deny deductions in these situations if it's a deduction that's one of the listed significant expenses in the 901 regs does that jeopardize the creditability of the tax because you might violate the cost recovery requirement and the proposed regs liberalized those, but they didn't go into this at all. And
0: although from a cost recovery perspective, wouldn't you say that there's a public policy exception? Although I guess it's not really necessarily base erosion as much as it's a min tax,
4: but I mean, Exactly, exactly. I mean, I guess it's, you could say a mint tax is consistent with our guilty rules, but that's not exactly apples and apples here. But yeah, you're right. It's possible to come up with public policy arguments for why the country is denying the deductions when it applies to UTPR, but it is uncharted territory. We don't know for sure. If the U.S., for instance, does not want to credit these taxes, this would be a way to do that. <laughs>
0: right. I wonder, you look at the EU directive, the Mm -hmm. Pillar 2 directive, and they took a little bit of latitude there by saying, well, if we have member states, and they do, that don't have enough Pillar 2 taxpayers within their territory, then perhaps they're just going to defer the application of Pillar 2 or the implementation of Pillar 2 within their territory for, what is it, six years I wonder if anyone has looked at that and thought, you know what, some of these jurisdictions may have the exact same situation where there just aren't that many, that when it comes right down to it, they can't do it. But in any case, even if they could do it, as you say, under the constitutional or under contractual obligations, if they could find a way to do it, there would still be a tremendous amount of implementation costs, of administration, of compliance, of enforcement, just a nightmare for a very, very small handful. I wonder if anyone's looked at the expiration of those legal stability agreements to see whether something like a six-year window would help them. Because well, if I were them, I'd look at the EU and I'd say, if Paris didn't jump up and down and scream about the EU doing this, we're not going to do it for a day sooner than six years. Thank you.
2: Right? I mean, No, you have a point because, first of all, the, the full implementation of Pillar 2 in the Latin probably does not make any sense for one reason. We go country by country. Brazil. Brazil has like a 300 companies that will be subject to Pillar 2, but in Brazil, you have a very aggressive CFC rules that they tax everything. So seems to be that the Brazilians were the pioneers of the Pillar 2. <laughs> Basically, they are relying on the CFC rules in order to avoid the discussions in relation to the Pillar 2, in relation to income inclusion rule, etc. So on the other hand, you see in Mexico, we have like a 125 companies, probably that will be affected by Pillar 2 in a full way. And the rest of the country, in in Latin America, you will see Colombia with five, six, Argentina with six, seven, Peru with two, three, and the rest of Latin, this will be the number. So the only thing that probably will make sense is if they want to only to implement the qualified minimum domestic cup of tax. Yeah. For me, this will be the only one in order to protect their tax basis, because in any circumstances, there could be potential problems in which due to the application of a foreign legislation, the income that is not subject to taxation in Mexico and other countries will be subject to tax elsewhere So one of the points that we have to remember is. The adjustment for inflation always has been an issue that we have raised several times in relation to the lack part of Pillar 2 for those countries that have implemented or have from long time adjustment for inflation for tax purposes. When you have losses for inflation, this reduces dramatically your income tax and takes into consideration the inflationary rate that we have now among Latin America. This is a very important concept that where are Notwithstanding with the high rates, you can be below the 15%. So this is the way that if I don't want to in any way that other country could tax that part. And that's why qualifying minimum domestic type of tax would be the natural answer for them. I don't expect that many countries will try to see the whole package. One of the points that we have seen, for example, in the case of Mexican large multinationals, is they are very boring because They have a lot of subholding companies located in Europe, and they will start to accrue or to tax the whole group, because basically it's Mexico, the European subholding, and the rest of the companies. So you will allocate everything in Europe. And they say, I prefer to have all of this tax paid in Mexico. Probably in some ways they are pushing to the government saying, let us know exactly what is your plans, because we want to have everything here in Mexico instead of another jurisdiction.
0: Like South Korea.
2: Yeah.
3: How would Mexico view the Pillar 2 in relation to treaties as well?
2: Yes, this is a very good question because, of course, there is no formal position from the government saying that this could be against the tax treaties. Basically, what we receive as a first answer was, if the CFC can be applicable, same rationale has to be applicable for, for Pillar 2. And this is debatable at the end. Because the CFC rule, what you are trying to do is to avoid that there will be a delay on the payment of the taxes. But the problem here in the pillar two is you are obliged to pay a minimum tax. That this is something that is not behind the rationale of what is contained in the OECD model, saying that you can apply your CFC rules because you are taxing your own residents, and nothing in the treaty prevents you to do that. But the point here is you are obliged to pay a minimum tax to elsewhere. And if it's not at the hands of your company, it will be at the hands of elsewhere. And this is something that probably could be a violation in accordance to the treaties. The Canadians, if my recollection is correct, they have said that there is a direct violation of the treaties. They don't see any room to apply Pillar 2 at this stage, taking into consideration what is drafted now in the Convention. So this is a very good discussion. We don't know exactly what would be the movement of the government
0: Countries could always pull the ripcord, right? And and by that, (laughs) I mean, you've had, what, the Caymans saying, I don't care. What does raising your hand in the inclusive framework mean at the beginning of something huge that is a good concept? Sure, everyone can sign up to the concept, but especially when we're looking at... Political administrations that may say no, just legislative difficulties in getting rules passed, which we have in the United States, right, or, you know, constitutional bars and issues with respect to our lowest taxpaying but highest investing taxpayers within this jurisdiction. I mean, we could just say no. And the implementation dates are rushing up on us, right? I mean, they never seemed far enough away.
2: No, 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 no. It has been very interesting.
0: Armando's not buying it, is what I
3: just heard. (laughs) He didn't say it. That's what I heard. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: Okay, so things seem to be getting more, not less complicated as we enter the home stretch on Pillar 2. Stay tuned. And in the meantime, be good. Stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.